As we turn our attention to the scriptures tonight, I want to invite you to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23, and our focus of attention tonight is on the passage from verse 10 through verse 19. Exodus 23, verse 10 through verse 19. The law of the Lord says, For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. Three times a year, all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Let's pray before the Lord tonight. Our Father, we thank you for the the few moments that we have this evening to learn from your word, to, to read these truths that you gave to Moses and your people long ago. And Lord, help us, I pray that as we read them, that we would understand the meaning of them for your people, Israel, as well as how we might take these truths and apply them to our lives today as followers and believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as beneficiaries of the new covenant. Lord, I pray that you would be honored during this time as your word is our focus. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. As I was thinking about this particular passage, and really we could apply this to many of the laws that we've looked at in this portion of the book of the covenant in Exodus, one of the things I thought about is even though many of these laws that we are learning about do not apply to us directly in the exact same way that they applied to the Israelites in the ancient times under the old covenant, that they still teach us many things about who God is, about his character, about the, about the way that he relates to his people, and about the way that his people are to relate to one another, but also to outsiders. And one of the things that, that strikes me in this passage in particular, that I think is a principle that crosses both covenants, both testaments, is that the Lord, the Lord God, He is sovereign over every aspect of our lives. He is sovereign over every aspect 
of our lives. And you see that when you read a passage like this and you see the way that God gives out specific commands about the way that they were to live their daily lives. And that's important for us to remember, isn't it? That, that as followers of God, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is not just the Lord of Sunday, is he? He is the Lord of Monday and Tuesday and all the way through the end of the week. He's the God of all time, isn't he? He's the God of all time. He's the God of every moment. And he is the God over our entire lives. So he's not just God over what we sing on Sunday. He's not just God over the messages that we listen to from the word on Sunday. He's God over what we do on Monday morning when we wake up. He's Lord over how we relate to other people at our workplace. He's Lord over whether or not we make this purchase or this purchase. He's Lord over how we dress. He's Lord over how we communicate with one another. He's Lord over how we eat. He's Lord over everything, isn't he? And even though we don't follow this exact same religious calendar that is brought up here in this passage, such as the the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Ingathering, still it communicates the truth that the Lord is the Lord of time. He is, he is the Lord of time. And as we, his followers and his worshipers now in the new covenant, we need to remember that, that even though we don't celebrate these festivals on particular days of the calendar, like the ancient Israelites did, every day belongs to God. Every day belongs to him. One of the commentators that I read uh, in preparing for this message tonight, this is Victor Hamilton. He, he related the kind of the essence of this passage this way. He said, I think the connection between verses 10 through 13 and verses 14 through 17 is thematic. He says, you don't control your work schedule and you don't control your worship schedule. That was a pretty succinct way of communicating the big idea of this passage, isn't it? You don't control your work schedule. Who does? God does. You don't control your worship schedule. God does. So he controls your work, the days that you work, the day that you rest. He controls your worship, when and where you worship, and how you are to worship him. He's the Lord. He's the Lord God. And so as we look at the first portion of this passage tonight, especially in verses 10 to 12, we see that God gives his people the gift of rest. God gives his people the gift of rest and all are free to enjoy it. God gives his people the gift of rest and all are free to enjoy it. I also thought as I was thinking about the, the Sabbath command in particular and the way that the Sabbath was regulated in ancient Israel, there are times when we read some of the commands about the Sabbath and they seem very strict, such as we read about a passage, I believe it's in Numbers, where a man was out gathering sticks on the Sabbath day and they brought the case to Moses and Moses brought it before the Lord and the Lord's reply was he should be stoned to death for gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. So sometimes we read some of these individual passages about the Sabbath and we think, wow, these seem really strict, almost overbearing. 
And I was thinking about that in context of this passage and thinking about what the purpose of the Sabbath is. And the purpose of the Sabbath is to give rest, isn't it? The purpose of the Sabbath is to give rest. Whose good is that for? It's for our good, isn't it? It's for the good of the people. In fact, Jesus even said that when he was wrestling with the Pharisees about their little laws and regulations that they built up around the Sabbath. Jesus said, the Sabbath, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift from God, isn't it? And I was thinking about that, that even though the Sabbath is a command and it is, it is a, it bears the authority of God in that command, but it's good, isn't it? It's for the good of his people. And it made me think about that in terms of all of God's laws, that everything that God says, everything that God mandates for his people is good. It's for their good. You can go back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden and God puts limits around this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from it. That was for their good. That was for their good. God did not want them to experience rebellion. God did not want them to experience sin. God did not want them to become the the sole arbiters of their own version of right and wrong. It was for their good to listen and submit to God. It would have been for their ultimate pleasure and their ultimate happiness. And all of these commands that God gives, they are for the good of his people individually and in community as they relate to each other and as they relate to him. And so these are good commands. And one of the commands that is spelled out here in the first couple of verses of this passage is the command to let the land rest every seventh year. Some of the commentators were in disagreement about how this was carried out, whether or not um, the people of ancient Israel obeyed this command on kind of a rotating schedule in which, say, for example, if they had large portions of land that maybe they let this portion of land rest this year, but then a different year they let this portion of land rest. And so almost like each portion of land had its own seven-year cycle. And so in that way, they would be obeying this command, but in cycle, and they would glean from the crops from their other fields the rest of the time. And some have suggested that that was the way it was carried out. But we go to a passage in Leviticus, and I believe this is in Leviticus 25. And in that passage, it seems to convey that all of the land in totality was to rest all at the same time. And I tend to prefer that way uh, in in that way that God intended for this command to be carried out, that all of the land would rest all at the same time. And the reason I say that is because of the kind of the pattern that this is built on. And the pattern that it's built on is the Passover in the Passover or I'm sorry, not the Passover. Yes. But then even later on after that, there is the provision of manna. That's what I was trying to focus on the provision of manna. So they're out in the wilderness and God says, I'm going to bless you with manna and I'm going to provide for you every day bread for you to eat. But the pattern that God set up was this. You're to get manna every single day and only get what you need for that day, right? But on the sixth day, 
you can get double. Why? Because it's intended to carry over to the seventh day, the day in which you're not supposed to go out and get anything from the field. In other words, that principle of that sabbatical cycle in the giving of manna taught the Israelites that they needed to depend upon God and they needed to trust him for provision in that seventh day. If we take that principle into the sabbatical cycle of the fields, I think the same thing holds true in that they needed to trust God for the bountiful provision that he would give them in the sixth year. And then they needed to trust him that that would last through all of the seventh year and that he would provide for them. Because if you think about it, if they were to rotate all their crops and they would leave just a little portion to rest every seventh year, where's the trust in that? Where's the faith in that? Where's the dependence upon God in that? And so I think that probably the intention was that all of Israel in community, and by the way, when you see anything that the Israelites do in worship of the Lord or anything that's a part of their, their uh, worship cycle or schedule, it all seems to be done in community, doesn't it? All together. And that seems to be the pattern with the rest of the land too. The Sabbath in the ancient Israel, you couldn't choose your Sabbath day, could you? You didn't choose your Sabbath day. Everyone rested on the, sa- on the same day. And so it seems to me that that would apply to the resting of land as well, that all Israel celebrated that together. And that would seem to be the way it would have to work for the year of Jubilee to come. Because what's the year of Jubilee? It's a, it's a cycle of every seven years. So in other words, I think this was a national cycle that they were to operate on and all the people were to participate in it together. And so this was an act of faith. Letting the land rest every seventh year was an act of faith. But it was also an act of devotion because it was trusting God. It was not only an act of faith and trusting God, but it was also an act of devotion in basically by not touching that land during that whole seventh year, they, they did nothing to it. So you couldn't even go out there and take away the old plants. You couldn't, you couldn't plow up the field. You couldn't do anything to it. It was to be untouched for that seventh year. And that was to communicate and remember who this land actually belongs to. It actually belongs to God, doesn't it? God is the Lord over all the earth. And this belongs to him, the ultimate owner. And so it was an act of faith. It was an act of devotion. It was also an act of care and concern. It was an act of care and concern for the poor. This says, then the poor among your people may get food from it. So whatever would grow or whatever would be left over in the field during that seventh year, whatever would grow naturally, the poor could come in and they could glean from that and have food for them. And so this was a a command given for care and concern and not only for the poor, but also for the sake of other aspects of God's creation. He said, even the animals can come and eat from this field that is untouched for that seventh year. So this was an act of care for the sake of the poor, for the sake of creation. So the land was to rest every seventh year. Then in verse 12, we see that he gets down to the weak level to the weak level. He says, six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day, do not work. We've seen this before. This is a part of the 10 commandments. 
So it works six days, but on the seventh, it is a day of rest. But what is interesting about the way that it's phrased here in Exodus 23, verse 12, is that it is communicated with particular reference to the needy. With particular reference to those who are in need. So we see, for example, take a break on the seventh day, rest. It's a gift from God, isn't it? It's a gift. So it's for your sake that you may take a breather, but it's also for the sake of even your animals, the beasts of burden that would be working for six days a week. It was for the sake of the slave, the person who probably bore the, the, the great weight of the manual labor that was done in the household for six days. Even the slave was to rest on the seventh day. And even for the foreigner among you, even those who are not of the people of Abraham, but those who have come in, maybe migrant workers to come in and and to earn a living in the land of Israel, you are to let them rest as well. In other words, everybody can enjoy this, right? It's a gift of God to his people, but everyone can enjoy it, regardless of your status, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of who you are. This is a gift of rest from God. And so that the the needy, the animals, the slave, the foreigner, so that they may be refreshed as well. And what's interesting is that word that is translated refreshed could be in a very literalistic way translated as take a breath, take a breather, take a rest. It's for, it's for their good. It's for our good to rest. So let me say this. If you are overworking, if you are a workaholic, a work addict, and you never rest, you're disobeying God. God says to rest. And to rest means to trust. Because we think, oh, I've got to do this because if I don't do this, then I'm not going to get this done. And, and this is not going to happen. You've got to trust. You've got to rely upon God. And so God gives his people the gift of rest and all are free to enjoy it. Secondly, the second part of this passage, God gives his people the gift of festivals and all may enjoy them in true worship and praise to God. God gives his people the gift of festivals and all may enjoy them in true worship and praise to God. In verse 13, we see that the worship of God is to be wholehearted and exclusive. Wholehearted and exclusive. It is to be wholehearted because God says, be careful to do everything that I have said to you. So, wholehearted with all of our being, we need to love God and seek to obey him and live for him. As Paul says in the New Testament context, that we are to give our bodies as a daily living sacrifice to God. Wholehearted devotion and obedience. But then we also see in verse 13 that the worship of God is to be exclusive. He says, do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. And this is probably directly related to the third command to not take the name of the Lord God in vain. And as a part of that is to not put the name of God in association with the names of any other gods. And so the, the word of God says, if you take an oath, you take it in the name of Yahweh. You take it in the name of the one true Lord God. You do not invoke the name of another God in the taking of an oath. 
And you're not even to mention their names on your lips. One of the commentators that I read suggested that the way that the ancient cultures transmitted their religion, transmitted their teachings, was by word of mouth. It was through stories. It was through the relating of those stories. It was a very oral driven culture. They, they didn't rely upon writings like we do today. Most everything was passed on from word to ear. And so the way that these pagan religions, the way that they were communicated is they would communicate their stories, their myths of where these gods came from, what these gods did, uh, the way that these gods triumphed in different aspects of, of their lordship over the, the world in different ways. So they were very much story-driven religions. And basically what this is saying is do not tell those stories. Don't tell those stories. Don't relate those pagan ideas. Don't communicate those myths of those foreign pagan religions because you don't want to be a part of the chain of disseminating that which is in error and that which is in falsehood, that which is contrary to the truth. So don't even bring them up. Don't even mention their names. And one of the cultural commentaries that I read suggested that, that even this is in context of agriculture in terms of the festival cycle and the harvest cycle probably is why this is mentioned here because in a lot of those pagan myths, those gods were celebrated at particular times of the year for, for things that they did for their people at certain times of year on the calendar. And here in that context, in, a, in the context of the, the calendar of annual harvests, of annual festivals, God says, don't even bring up their names. Don't even mention them. Because the worship of God is to be exclusive. There is one and only one God. And he alone is to be worshipped. So the worship of God is to be wholehearted and exclusive. We see also in this passage that the worship of God is scheduled by his word. The worship of God is scheduled by his word. God says three times a year, you are to celebrate a festival to me. So God establishes it. Here are the festivals and here are the times in which you are to celebrate these festivals. Verse 17, likewise says three times a year, all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. So this not only meant celebrating at particular times of the year, but that at three times of the year, the men were to actually make a pilgrimage and they were to appear at the central place of worship, whether it be the tabernacle or the temple, the central sanctuary. They were to make that pilgrimage. And the reason probably why it was only men who were required to do this is because maybe mothers may not be able to come. They had small children, nursing babies, whatever it may be, taking care of aged parents. So the men were particularly required to come and make this pilgrimage, though all could come. All could come and appear at different times at these times of the year to worship God. And so the schedule gives these three festivals. Now, there are other festivals that are mentioned in other places of Scripture. But here in Exodus 23, it just mentions these three. The festival of unleavened bread, which took place in the spring and is the in the Jewish calendar, the first month of their year. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins with Passover. And so Passover would then followed by a seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
And this was to celebrate God's redemption of his people out of Egypt. So they, for that whole week, they would eat unleavened bread. And that was to commemorate what God had done when he rescued them in Passover and brought them out of Egypt. And you remember the context that we saw in Exodus, that the reason for unleavened bread was most likely because they did not have time to use leaven in their bread. It was, it was done in haste. This is a meal that was to be done in haste, in a hurry, because tonight you are leaving this land. So go and leave. And so then for, for every year they celebrated this, they were to have unleavened bread to remember that deliverance that God had given them. And so this is worshiping God in remembrance, worshiping God in celebration of his redeeming acts. And don't we do that every time that we gather together? Every time that we gather together in worship, do we not seek to remember and to celebrate what God has done for us in the past through his acts of redemption? In particular, the height, the, the, the climactic act of God's redemption in Christ Jesus. Jesus, the final Passover lamb, if you will. And so every time that we gather, we remember that act of redemption, just as the Israelite people were to remember it every year when they came for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second festival that's mentioned here is the, the Festival of Harvest, and the festival of harvest was a time to honor God with the best of the first fruits of what he had blessed his people with. So verse 16, the first part of verse 16 says, celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops that you sow in your field. Most of the commentary suggested that the feast of harvest would be associated with the first harvest of grain that would occur probably about seven weeks after Passover, sometime around Pentecost. And so this was sometimes called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Harvest. And this was a time to, to honor God in what he had blessed them with thus far. And they were to come with the best. They were to come with the first fruits. And so worship is a time of giving God the best of what we have in order to honor him for his grace. Worship is a time to, to, of giving God the best of what we have in order to honor him for his grace. So they were to bring the first fruits of the crops. Now, none of us in here, I don't think, actively raise crops for food. At least we have a garden, but we're not raising large amounts of crops and, and then tithing on those crops as they would do in ancient Israel. But we do come and we give, don't we? We give a tenth a tithe. We give offerings of what God has blessed us with. And we seek to give the best. We seek to give the first fruits. But let me extend the application beyond just our resources to also our time and our attention. And let me suggest as an application of this, that when we come to worship God, that we give him not only the best of our resources, but we give him the best of our attention and our time. And so we prepare ourselves to worship God. We give ourselves rest to worship God appropriately when we come together before him. God deserves our best, doesn't he? He deserves our best attention. He deserves, he deserves our best singing. He deserves our best attendance. He deserves our best giving and offering. He deserves the best. 
because of what he has done for us by grace. And then the third uh, festival that's mentioned here is the Feast of Ingathering. And this was a little bit later in the year, more in the time that we would associate with fall. And this was the final harvest and ingathering of the year. And this was a time in which they would not only harvest the crops, but they would also gather them in and bring them in for storage for the winter. And so this was the final festival. And it marked kind of an end of the year kind of commemoration of all that God had done for them. It was a time of thanksgiving. It was a time of thanksgiving. And so the worship of God is a time of thanksgiving, remembering what our God has done for us. So the worship of God is scheduled by his word. And just as an application of that, let me, let me throw this out. I believe that the first day of the week is to be the day of worship. The first day of the week is to be the day of worship. And that is based on the pattern of Christ and the apostles and the early church. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, didn't he? First day of the week. We see then from there on when the church gathered, we see several references to it in the New Testament that when the church gathered, they gathered on the first day of the week. Now, a recent trend in evangelical churches is to have their primary worship gathering on Friday night, on Saturday night, in addition to perhaps Sunday morning. And the reason they do this is because uh, they, they want to get as many people in and rotate them into this one mega church as often as they can. And so this church is so huge, they've got to schedule Friday night and Saturday night and Sunday morning services. I would just suggest that we ought to follow the New Testament pattern and that we ought to worship on the first day of the week. And so the Lord is Lord of our worship schedule. He's the Lord of our time. Finally, the last couple of verses, verses 18 and 19. The worship of God is not only scheduled by his word, the worship of God is regulated by his word. The worship of God is regulated by his word. We see in verses 18 and 19 a couple of verses that really, when we read them, we wonder, how do I apply this to my life today? Verse 18 says, Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. Let's think about that for a moment. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. First of all, all of these things, all of these last few commands in verses 18 and 19 relate to worship. And that's why I said the worship of God is regulated by his word. He gives commands. He gives instructions about how proper worship is to be carried out. And so this says, don't offer together a blood sacrifice and anything that has yeast in it. Why? Probably because this is an association with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there was a particular emphasis on remembering what God had done for his people in Passover. And so in in doing this, we do not bring together things that were separated in Passover. And so we are to worship in a such a way that we honor the original event that we are commemorating. We worship in such a way so as to honor the original event that we are commemorating. Let me just give an example in way that we could apply that to our own context. Frequently, we will take place, uh, take part of the Lord's Supper, don't we? 
as we take part of the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul says that every person ought to examine themselves and that they ought to take note that they are taking part, or they should, they, should, they should take note of the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, as we partake of that festival, if you will, that meal, we are to honor the original event that it commemorates. Just as they were to honor the original event of Passover in the way that they offered their sacrifices. So remember the Lord in that way. Honor the original events. Honor the significance of those events in our patterns of worship. See also in verse number 18, the fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until the morning. You'll be sure you do that, okay? Don't keep your fat overnight. Now, what does that mean? What's the significance of it? Well, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the fat portions, which were considered to be the good portions, the tasty portions, they belong to God. They belong to God, and they were to be offered in sacrifice to God. In other words, the best belonged to him. And if the best belongs to him, it is not to be left over. Why would you leave it over? Why would you save it? Only if you were going to take it home for yourself, right? Don't save it. It's not to be saved. It's not to be kept until the morning. It's to be offered in sacrifice to God because it belongs to him. An application of that might be don't rob from God what rightfully belongs to him. So honor him in the way that we worship him. Verse 19, we see, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. We've seen that in this passage already, that God deserves our best, right? He deserves our best. Bring the first fruits, the best. And then we come to a prescription in the last part of verse number 19. And this is a very interesting one. And it's repeated a couple of other times in the Pentateuch, in the Old Testament. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And scholars have wrestled over this one. What, what's the significance of this? What, what, why this command? It's not just mentioned once. It's mentioned a few times. So what's the significance of this command? Some have suggested that it was based on ancient Canaanite pagan practices. And so, in other words, don't worship the way that the Canaanites worship. That's one possibility. The problem is we really haven't been able to find anything in archaeology or in the ancient world that suggests that this was a Canaanite practice. So others have suggested another possible reason. And I actually, I actually tend toward this reason, this explanation. And that is this, that in, in this process of cooking a young goat, you are not to do it in its mother's milk because what you are doing essentially is you are combining symbolically life and death. What is milk for? How is milk used? Milk is given to the young, right? Milk is given to the young. Milk is a source of sustenance. Milk is a source of life. And essentially what you're doing is you're killing something in that which is to be its source of life. And you are mixing together life and death. I'll, I'll read from a commentary just to, to give an example of how this is explained in this view. This view actually goes back to ancient Jew Philo. 
writing in the first century. Philo says this, It is grossly improper that the substance which fed the living animal should be used to season and flavor the same after its death. Man should not misuse what has sustained its life. So in other words, do not use, says this law, something that brings life to bring death. Another commentator says, the mixture of the mother's, the mother animal's nurturing milk with the slaughtered flesh of her offspring is a promiscuous joining of life and death. What brought life now brings death, and that is not right. So that is one way of understanding this passage. And in fact, during the late first century, so almost 2,000 years ago, we see the Jewish people adopting a very strict part of their customs of any time that they eat meat, they do not eat any dairy product along with it in recognition of what this command is saying. So do not mix together life and death. And another reason why I adopt that explanation is because I think that explanation fits a couple of other interesting commands in other places in Scripture. This, this symbolic joining of life and death is prohibited. And that fits a couple of other commands, too, that we may come across. So what is this passage teaching us? This passage is teaching us that God has established regular times of rest so that his people may be refreshed. And God has regulated worship so that he may be fully honored by his redeemed people. As one puts it, he is the Lord of your property and he's the Lord of your time. God has given us regular times of rest so that his people may be refreshed. And he has regulated worship so that he may be fully honored by his redeemed people. And so with our time and with our worship, may we honor our God. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you are the Lord God of all the earth. Father, even though there are many times when we fail, we desire, Lord, to acknowledge your sovereignty. We desire to acknowledge your lordship over every aspect of our lives. And Lord, because we fail and because we are imperfect and because we could never hope to accomplish all of the righteousness of your law on our own, we are thankful, Lord, that you have given us a substitute. You've given us a representative, a perfect one in that of Jesus Christ and that he has come in full righteousness and then laid down his life for us that he might take our sin upon himself so that we might be forgiven. Lord, now as your redeemed people, as your covenant people, Lord, help us to arrange our time, arrange our days in such a way so as to uh, benefit from the rest that you've given to us and as well so that we might honor you with our time with our lives, and that we might worship you appropriately. Lord, bless us as your people as we go now and as we seek to live for you and be a light in this world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.